Jay Bowers tells us in his essay, Chasing Edgar, Edgar Allan Poe's 200th birthday meant big business for the retail and tourism industries. The popular clothing merchandiser, Urban Outfitters, marketed exclusive ladies' t-shirts featuring quotations from the poem Alone and The Raven, as well as a men's Edgar Allan Poe tee emblazoned with a screen print of the author framed by a reclining skeleton. All styles were naturally available in just one color, black. Six American locales, Baltimore, Philadelphia, Boston, New York, Richmond, and Sullivan's Island attracted literary pilgrims wishing to celebrate Poe's bicentennial in style. And the U.S. Postal Service released a commemorative 42-cent postal stamp accompanied by a limited-edition commemorative copy of The Raven, advertised with the less-than-catchy slogan, the Edgar Allan Poe stamp, for now, not nevermore. The Postal Service slogan, for now, not nevermore, maybe a send-up of the forever stamps they would sell, but it's an ironic motto for the story we're about to tell. We're going to lay out the story of a group of artists who are staking the success of their career as a band on telling the tales written by Poe in song. And Tom Verano, band leader, will say he and the players, when they were starting out as early as eighth grade actually, thought there would be nothing better than doing what they were loving, playing music before an appreciative audience. They could do it for the rest of their lives. That is, forever, or in this case, evermore. Edgar Allan Poe was a master teller of tales. We might remember that he's credited with bringing life to the first detective story, setting the stage for much detective fiction that followed. And more irony, the story of this band, The Glass Prism, involves a mysterious disappearance and even a detective who was brought in on the case. That disappearance brought a halt to the dreams of Glass Prism, the dreams they had of going on to national success and developing their Poe material. In other words, it seemed as if Glass Prism would never more perform. So there were evermore dreams and a nevermore reality. But remember the Postal Service slogan, now, not nevermore. This is one of Glass Prism's newer songs, Resurrection, and it is so much brighter. It could be a description of the Phoenix from the Ashes comeback of the group. Now, performing what fans know and love from days of yore, and growing as musicians into the future. That's the evermore aspect. Glass Prism performing live in concert this Saturday, September 18th at the Theatre at North in Scranton. 
We had a chance to speak by phone with Tom Verano, who'll tell us tales of Poe and Prism now and no longer, nevermore. In 1960, the summer of 1960, I was 12. I was going to turn 13 in September. And I started playing with guys that could play instruments, piano players, a guy that could play drums, and anything that we could pick up, such as a Chuck Berry song or a Little Richard or... Uh, it could be a doo-wop kind of song, like In the Still of the Night, or it could be a Ray Charles song. Whatever it was on the radio, whatever was popular. And, hey, if we could play those songs in front of an audience, man, that was really great. Eighth grade graduation, Carl Syracuse, one of the original members of the Glass Prison, and Al Caminos, of course, and I went to grade school together. And in our eighth grade graduation, we were on stage playing Wild One by Bobby Rydell. I'll never forget the day of standing on a stage in front of an audience of our peers, the kids that we were going to school with, and, and every day, you know, learning algebra and, and whatever in religion class. And here we are on a stage. Man, nothing is better than that. And we do that every day of our lives, forever. So Carl and I uh, got together with the guys from Berwick, George Fox and Steve Bond, and started playing little parties for grown-ups. We would play whatever songs they asked us to play. We would learn standards. We would learn, you know, things like My Buddy or In the Still of the Night, you know, just these pop songs that people recognized. And then it sort of changed by the mid-60s when, when the Beatles took over. And it was like, this is really cool music. This is melodic and it has harmonies and you can, you can stand on stage and jump around. You could change the, your haircut from the pompadour Elvis look to what John Lennon and Paul McCartney look like. What could be better than than this? And and you know you play teen dances. All of a sudden, there's bands on every street corner getting together, and there's teen dances and all these little halls, these little church halls or Junior Mechanics Hall or Robert Burns Hall. All these places that could hold maybe 200, 300 kids, and that's what it was. It was all these baby boomers coming out on the weekends and then in the summer, any night of the week, to come and see somebody that looked like, sounded like the Beatles kind of, or a little bit maybe, and could play the songs that they heard on the radio that day. That's, that's where it all started. In, in 1969, the British invasion still going strong. We ended up getting a contract with RCA because we had written rock music to Edgar Allan Poe's poetry. Uh, <laughs> and RCA, you mean the label that Elvis Presley is on? This is where this is where we're at in 1969. So that decade, that first decade, you know, there's a moon landing in 1969. There's Woodstock in 1969. I mean, what is going on? Everything is happening. The world is exploding with music and with all kinds of other events that are just changing the way we look at things. And Tom, let's go back to Poe. You guys must have been really, the word isn't hip then, but you guys must have been really cool. How is it that you guys were reading Poe? What was that about? That was about Augie Cristiano calling me up and saying, I got this idea, why don't we write music to The Raven by Edgar Allan Poe? That seemed to be the key poem written by Edgar Allan Poe that everybody knew. And uh, at that time, I had a store in Wilkes-Barre, and he came down to my store, and in the back room, we used that for our rehearsals. And he and I sat and worked out the right chords and the 
the right verses that we would choose because the Raven has 15 verses and we had to shorten it a bit, so we shortened it to eight verses. And then, of course, when the single came out, uh, it was four verses because radio stations wouldn't play songs longer than two or three minutes, and it ended up still to be four minutes long. So think about that. Eight verses, and the audience would ask us to play it twice a night. But what we did is we got into that sort of Edwardian look, so we were, you know, the high collars and the ruffles and all that. We got into that look, which seemed to also be something that a lot of other rock groups were picking up on, and we would do a set every night where we would play the pop music of the day in regular kind of standard rock-looking outfits, and then we would take a break and change into these almost costumes, just ruffles and high collars and the Edwardian look, and come out and we would do a complete set of the Edgar Allan Poe stuff. We would mix it with some material by Procol Harum, which had that same kind of look and sound, songs maybe by Cream, like White Room, whatever seemed to fit that style. Certainly songs by Uriah Heep, like You Keep Me Hanging On, and other songs from their hit albums. And that stuff was a whole set every night that we did. And the audience stopped dancing and looked to see what we were going to wear, what we were going to play, where our fingers were going to go on our instruments, because they had never seen anything. I mean, they're listening to us play songs by Tommy James and the Shondells, or whatever popular song was coming out by the grassroots that day. And all of a sudden, we're doing all this technical stuff, and we're doing all this four-part harmony, and they're looking at the stage thinking, this is cool. I guess that's what they thought, because it was creating a popularity for us. And the guys from RCA liked the idea, and the manager that came to see us playing in Scranton at Tuesdays a go-go, of all places, after we played a set, said, come to New York this week, and we'll sign a contract and uh, I'll get you a record deal. And that all happened probably within two weeks. And we were just a local band like everybody else, but we had ideas, and we were writing songs. And we were attempting to get record deals for a few years, two or three years, and, and the whole Poe thing started in 19, late 68, and by mid-69, it was on the radio. And Mort Lewis, who was managing Simon and Garfunkel and Blood, Sweat, and Tears, was managing us. So things were going to happen. We were going to go on tour with Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Their second hit single, Spinning Wheel, was about to come out. And Mort Lewis, for some reason, left New York City and went to Florida. That much we knew. And two or three weeks after our record, the single, The Raven, started coming up the charts and was picked by the record magazines of Cashbox, Billboard, Record World. All thought that it would be a top-ten song. And they also thought our album, Poe Through the Glass Prism, would be a top-ten album. It did start to come up the charts, and RCA was watching over that and also doing some additional advertisement to get radio stations to play it. And then Mort Lewis, who went to Florida, disappeared. Never to be heard from again, by the way, until 2014, but that's another story. He left the industry. No one knows why or where he went or what he did, including his relatives, which contacted me in the 2000s and said they hadn't heard from him since 1969. We know that his wife, at the time that he signed us, was not his wife a year later, and that she married Paul Simon, and that she uh, had a, a son with Paul. That lasted for a year or two before they separated or got divorced. So we know something took place, but we don't know what. And we'll probably never know what took place, even though there's a documentary about the band 
the two companies that filmed the documentary and did research and hired detectives could not figure out where Mort Lewis was or why he disappeared and why our career ended. Because the people from RCA, all they said to me at the time, a few months had gone by, was that they're waiting for him to show up again so that we could continue on. But uh, that never happened. So by 1971, a couple of the guys in the groups moved on. Louis Costa joined the group. We changed the name to Shenandoah, went on for another five or six years, and I moved to New York and started a booking agency and a management company and didn't come back to the stage again until 2007. So things went from one point to another, and you just go with the flow, live life. But that is not the end of the story, which it could be, and yet there is something that you all had that people didn't forget. I think that maybe things were going to happen, so for some reason they didn't happen then. But in 2010, I was contacted by the president of a record label called Banderia, which is an Asian record label. It's South Korea, actually, is the location of the ownership of the company. said to me he would like to release both of our RCA albums on CDs and made a deal, a three-year deal, to release both Through the Glass Prism, our first album, and On Joy and Sorrow, our second album, on CDs. And he actually shrunk everything down to CD size. Even the labels inside are the same labels and the sleeves that would be used back in 69 and 70. So that was kind of a neat thing. They're online. People can find them that anyone would care at that point. From that point, a documentary came out, and the night that we first had that documentary in Scranton at the Mellow Theater, record label owner Dick Plotkin of Deborah Records said he'd like to record a new album with us doing some post stuff. So our new album called Resurrection came out in 2011 or 12, and he also released an album that had not come out in the 70s that we recorded when we were called Shenandoah. And that album is called Session 73. So there's a double album or singles of each of those albums on Deborah Records. And that was a new situation. As well as that documentary, went to various festivals, movie festivals. Uh, one I know for sure in Detroit. One I know for sure in Philly. There was one in Allentown. Uh, it's been on WVIA a few times, your TV station. And also Metrocast and some other places. Uh, we got a lot of uh, interest in the documentary, which is the story of the glass prism. It's called On Joy and Sorrow, the glass prism story. Then, recently, we were contacted by Sony, which happened to purchase our albums from RCA. And Sony decided that those two albums should be online on every digital format that there is, and people can go online, and obviously you're not buying anything physical. You're just buying either the songs or the albums, and that's been working real well since maybe April, or maybe a little bit before that, when that came out. So that's a new deal. We signed a new contract with Sony Records, which is worldwide. And that's a new thing with the same music from 69 and 70. Since then, a company called Gerson, G-U-E-R-S-O-N, from Spain, Alex Gerson actually called me, his label specializes in vinyl. And what he does is, he gets albums from the 60s and 70s and 80s and re-releases them. And I guess he has a whole network of stores that sell vinyl, and they love that kind of stuff. So he's working a deal out with Sony right now, because you got to go through Sony because they own the rights to the masters, to get the rights to use those masters and reissue those two albums. 
on a new label from Spain, of all places. And none of these things are connected to one another. They're all just things that happen. So you kind of think of it as kind of worldwide. There was recognition that I didn't even realize was happening, but supposedly it was, because these people found us purposely to re-release that material. And we're happy to do that, to play those songs live and to play new material live and to please the audience as best we can just to be able to still perform. Um, a little while after we finish today, we'll be rehearsing, running through our show that we're going to do Saturday night. We're still on board with moving forward, writing new material, getting ready for the next step, whatever it might be. Obviously, resurrection is the right choice. But tell us about that encounter you had in Philadelphia when you got to play at the Poe House when they wanted you to come down and do a concert. When we were talking about reuniting, and you know, a lot of groups were doing these reunion tours back in the early 2000s, so around 2006, 7, we started talking about, should we do this, and could we do this? And so I called down to the uh, Edgar Allan Poe Historic Site in Philly, because that seemed like a good place to start, and they knew us well down there, because I guess there's a room within that house where uh, Edgar lived for a few years, and it is his historic site in Philly, they had been playing our album, Poe Through the Glass Prism, for years. And now they're talking to someone from the band, and they're saying, we're having an event for the Edgar Allan Poe Historic Society, and could you guys play at it? So that panned out to be uh, a theater show across the street from the Edgar Allan Poe Historic Site in Philly. There's a theater called the German Society. It's a nice little theater with a perfect stage with, you know, the look that you would expect it to have. It all fit perfectly, and we said, maybe maybe we can do that. So we started rehearsing, and after, you know, a couple of months of getting it together, we went down and did our first live show since 1971, I guess, was the last time we played together. Uh, I did play till 76, but we weren't doing the post stuff. But uh, we put a show together, about a 70-80 minute show, and that worked out really well. A lot of people from the scranton Wilkesbury area came down. There was a bus load, for sure, and maybe three or 400 people in a nice small theater. It's a perfect way for us to, to start again on stage in front of people. And it also was the beginning. It was like the first time that these folks that were going to shoot this documentary showed up, and they had called me and said, we want to do a documentary. And they began the documentary with our first live appearance, and, and then from there they did interviews with various people from the area that knew us, uh, various people that worked with us, including Les Paul, who did a great interview. Matter of fact, it turned out to be his last interview before his passing. And it was great because when they spoke to him, they went down to the Iridium in New York City, where he was playing every Monday night in the Les Paul Trio. And they went down there, and they stayed with him all day. And he was gracious enough to talk to them about us and remembered, because this guy had recorded thousands of people, and some of them way bigger than us. And talked about when we were at his house and how we stayed with him and how we recorded these songs and uh, how great it was that we were back together. And we're real appreciative of the fact that Les Paul is on the documentary about the band. And so the historic site was the first show, and we felt confident that we could continue on and put together a show that lasted over two and a half hours. And we did that at the Scranton Cultural Center just a few months later to uh, get back to the Scranton area where we had a lot of fans from back in the day, and they all showed up to come and see what was going to happen. Could we still do it? And we did. 
from that show, there is a live video, which is available. People like it when they get it. So it's just one more recording of ours now that's out there that people that are fans can still say, hey, this thing is still happening. This thing is still going on. Maybe they're not 20 anymore, but they can still play. They can still sing. They can still write music. They can still continue on with uh, what they're doing. They can keep the theme of Edgar Allan Poe, and they can move into other things that are more rock-oriented, more, more of the new era of the band. The band goes on, and that's you know, we're, we're happy that we're still able to do that and still able to play and still able to sing and write and enjoy. Maybe, maybe there's some reminiscing for sure, I guess, uh, but I think more than anything, it's like we're still alive. You're not just a tribute band to yourselves. You're writing new stuff, and you're growing as a band even now, and that's a good reason to come and hear you. Tell us what we can expect then, and you've got another band on the, on the bill. We have a group of our friends called Say a Cabo, and they do a Santana tribute, and I think it's maybe the best Santana tribute ever, certainly, uh, that I've ever seen. A big group. Uh, 10 to 12 guys on stage, three percussionists. I mean, it's super. And they'll be with us opening the show at 7.30. We'll be going on about 9. The room will be warmed up for sure by the time they're done. And they'll open the door for us to come out and do our thing, which will be uh, stuff that people expect to hear us play in some cases because it's stuff that they remember, but there'll also be stuff that is a little bit newer from our Resurrection album keeping in, in, the, in line with the fact that we're going to do stuff that the folks expect and stuff that they'll be surprised to hear. It should be a lot of fun. I mean, you know, if you're going to entertain, that's what you came to do, and so that's what our plan is. What has it meant to spend so much time with a creative genius like Edgar Allan Poe? Have you turned people on to Poe? What has that meant in the large sense? You know, just in a, in a personal thing, back when uh, my kids were in grade school, I had their English teachers telling me how they use our Poe Through the Glass Prism album in their English classes to introduce the students to Edgar Allan Poe, and they loved the music because, you know, when you try to learn a poem or memorize anything, it's somewhat difficult, right? But you notice that you can learn the words to a song because there's a melody along with it. It seems to come easier. The teachers loved it. They loved the idea that the music turned the kids on to the poetry, and not only the poetry, but the stories. For example, on our Resurrection album, there's a song on there called The Black Cat. Well, Edgar wrote a short story called The Black Cat. He didn't write a poem about it. And so what we did was we took the theme of the story, and we created basically lyrics to the music that we created to fit that theme. So anyone listening to our Resurrection album, when you hear the Black Cat, those aren't his words, even though some of his words are in there. It's not his poem, but it's the, the mode and the whole storyline is within that song. And it's now a song, not just a short story. So I think we've, we've sort of grown in a way that we don't just take these four verses and put music to them. You need to know what it's supposed to feel like, what it's supposed to 
mean to people when they when they hear it, when they read it, when they think about it, when they feel what that what that guy is, is doing, what he's saying at that time, how he might have felt. How did he feel when he wrote the poem? Well, can we express it in music? I don't know. We tried, and maybe we were younger, and we succeeded in a way. If you listen to the way Augie sings The Raven, think about this. In the studio, the night before Augie sang the lyrics, we recorded the music, which was a Hammond B3 organ and a piano and set of drums and a bass and an acoustic guitar. And the next morning, because we lived at, at Les's house, which is attached to the studio, Les would wake us up with this big band coming through these speakers that he had in every room, which these days would not be that unusual. But back then, how many people had speakers in every room? And this big band would come on doing marching music. You know, that, that was a wake-up call. That was his alarm system for a time to get up, guys. And he woke up Augie with a cup of coffee. He said, Augie, let's go in the studio. Let's see what happens. And Augie went in the studio and sang that song one time. And if you think about recordings that you've heard, how many times do you hear a song where the singer has sung it once and it's become the final product? And that's what happened. Augie did one take on The Raven. And when you hear it now, he created that song, The Emotion, just with that one run-through. And there, there it was. It was finished. We didn't even say, let's do it again, because it was done. So, you know, you, you say, did he express the mood and the feeling? Did he tell the story in a musical sense? And I would say yes. Once upon a midnight Band leader, musician, songwriter Tom Verano, founding member of the Glass Prism, speaking with us in anticipation of a performance live in concert, the Glass Prism with Seacabo at the Theater at North in Scranton this Saturday, September 18th. Doors opening at 7, Seacabo performing at 7.30. The Glass Prism will come on stage at 9. You can find information on Facebook, and it's glass-prism in that case on Facebook. That's the Glass Prism and Seacabo live in concert at the Theater at North, North Main Avenue, 1539 North Main Avenue in Scranton, this Saturday, September 18th. Doors opening at 7, Seacabo, the Santana Tribute Band at 7.30, and the Glass Prism at 9. And for more information on Facebook, glass-prism. As Tom Verano told us, they'll be playing their standards, the favorites of fans over the years, and new material as well. And you can bet we'll hear The Raven. Open here, I flung the shutter When with many a flirt and flutter In the steps of stately raven Of the sacred days of yore Not the least of pieces, baby Not a minute stopped or stayed But with mine of Lord or Lady First above my chamber door all seats are reserved, and you can learn about tickets at the Theater at North box office 
in person or on the website, thetheateratnorth.org, T-H-E-A-T-E-R, thetheateratnorth.org. And that's also a cue for you to hear about meet and greet following the show with autographs and photos available as well. The Glass Prism and Sayacabo live in concert at the Theater at North, North Main Avenue in Scranton, this Saturday, September 18th, Sayacabo at 7.30, The Glass Prism at 9. Find them on Facebook. And for information about the show, thetheateratnorth.org. Tell me what that Lord did.